listening to Pythagoras' Trousers. Hello and welcome to this month's Pythagorean Astronomy with me, Chris North. This is part two of my report from my gravitational field trip, which found me out in Washington State in the US at the LIGO Hanford Observatory. If you didn't catch part one, then it's at pythagastro.uk, or you can find it on Spotify. Last month, we found out about how the detectors work and the scientists and engineers who operate them. This time, I want to take a longer-term look, not just at the future, but also into the past, and ask what it takes to get here and what the future holds. But before we get to that, let's look at what it takes to run a LIGO observatory. Who better to ask than the head of LIGO Hanford, Dr Mike Landry, who I spoke to outside the new LIGO Exploration Centre. We can see the, the beam line stretching off to uh, over there towards Rattlesnake Mountain. So four kilometres that way uh, is one beam line. Four metres behind these buildings is, a, is, a, is another beam line. Um, this is a this is a big, complicated uh, instrument that we're we're standing to the to the side of. What does it take to to operate this in terms of the sort of the day to day operations? I mean, there's, there must be an awful lot going on. Oh, there's a host of things going on. So it takes a village, of course. I mean, it takes the staff here, uh, about 50 people, plus visitors, 10 visitors on any given day, uh, people who are experts in either the science of gravitational waves or the science of interferometry or the engineering of those disciplines, vacuum engineers, electrical engineers, controls engineers. Uh, it takes facilities people. Mm. It takes... Uh, business people, it takes millwrights. I mean, there's all kinds of disciplines here that have to have to be expressed uh, in order to actually you know, achieve the things that you're trying to achieve, which is uh, the most sensitive detectors in the world, making them more sensitive and stable for the 04 observation run, which comes in March of 2023, roughly. And so, and beyond that, I mean, we can't do it on our own. So, we're supported by really key people from Caltech and MIT. That's part of the LIGO Laboratory, which is NSF-funded. And then there's the larger collaboration, the LSC and friends and colleagues from Virgo. And so the LSC, for instance, we have, I think, five LSC fellows here right now. So these are uh, PhD students or postdocs who are resident at the lab for upwards of a year. And they have specific targets of research that they're working on in order to push the interferometer or the calibration of the interferometer or the understanding of the detector characterization of that interferometer in order to make it sensitive enough and stable enough to run. So really, when I say village, I mean uh, those 1,400 people in the collaboration, um, many of whom come to the sites on any given day or week or month or year to, to make it happen. Just inside the LIGO Exploration Centre, with an amazing array of exhibits to explain gravitational wave detection, I found Dr Fred Raab, Associate Director of Operations for LIGO. It's a senior role, but one that Fred has risen up through the ranks of what's now called the LIGO Scientific Collaboration, as he explained. Well, I was around before there was a collaboration, Uh, so uh, I came to Caltech in 1988. Uh, to work on LIGO. I, before that, was in the field of precision measurements uh, using atoms and molecules uh, to look at, you know, 
possible beyond standard model physics. Uh, we were looking at time reversal non-invariance and other types of weak interactions uh, between the components of the uh, atom. And uh, now we know we should really have been looking for neutron, neutrino mass, but nobody knew that back then. Uh, and so in 1988, we started uh, working uh, very seriously on uh, writing uh, what would become the LIGO construction proposal that we submitted in December of 89. And so it was much later, uh, in 96 or 97, uh, that the LSC got started. So that's the scientific collaborations responsible for looking after you know, the, the data and, and how it's all analyzed and... Uh, yeah, so uh, Barry Barish uh, was the executive director of LIGO then, and uh, he came to the conclusion as we were working on the construction uh, which started in the, in the 90s, uh, that, uh, you know, although Caltech and MIT considered themselves to have a lot of scientific uh, brain power, uh, the richness of the gravitational field, wave field, would be severely limited if we didn't open it up uh, far more than that. And so his uh, model that he came up with is that we would have a collaboration that would uh, be open to all. There was a lot of concern about should we have open data like a NASA mission or you know, uh, exactly how to do this. And he felt that uh, the best way to do it uh, because of the highly experimental nature of this device uh, was to have uh, to give everybody the opportunity uh, to have access to data, uh, but through a sweat equity type of arrangement that you would do work for this group called the Collaboration, and uh, that would give you rights to data and publications and things like that jointly with everybody else. Which is the currency of a scientific world, right? Publication exactly. and science is, is more, more than money in that sense for a career and a, and a collaboration like right. that. Right. And, and, you know, at the time, uh, the data from LIGO, uh, you know, which is 10 megabytes per second of data, you know, if you actually gave it to somebody, you know, you'd ruin their scientific career because <laughs> you'd never figure it out. Uh, and it really required uh, large numbers of people uh, to just make sense of it. And so uh, that seemed like a better model. So as, as we sit here looking out the doors of this center, we can look out towards the, it's roughly west, I think, isn't it? And we can see just one of the beam arms uh, going four kilometers that way. Uh, it's got this dome over the top that's a few meters wide of concrete. And inside that is all the steel can, the, the steel tube of the, uh, uh, of the beam lines with the, with the vacuum in. And there's, there's the, the big building. I'm sure it's all changed over the years of things as, as things have evolved. But to run and design and, and, and construct an observatory like this, um, it takes much more than knowing about gravitational waves or general relativity. Right? I mean, you need someone who can pour concrete. That's right. uh, in a reliable way. I mean, it's such a multifaceted. Well, not only that, you need uh, you need uh, very uh, astute business people 
uh, you know, for instance, imagine you have to write a fixed price contract for a piece of equipment that no one in the world knows how to build. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that takes a bit of business uh, smarts. And there must be things where you've done that. You've worked with a contractor who's doing things that, as you say, no one has ever done before. Some piece of kit that goes in here that is so revolutionary, so groundbreaking in its accuracy or its precision or its construction, and then it it doesn't quite work as you planned or you expected. Um, that involves presumably then working with the contractor to go, well, let's fix this together. This is then much more intricate than a supplier, you know, customer relationship, I guess. Yeah, it really is. Uh, you know, we don't experience it when we buy a car mm. or we buy, you know, uh, an electronic device or a loaf of bread. Uh, but uh, there are several things that you have to price into something if you're a business uh, to not go out of business. Mm -hmm. Okay. And uh, one of them is, uh, has the acronym NRE, non-recurring engineering. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it might, you know, cost way less to build, you know, a particular type of car uh, than it to actually manufacture the car than the price you pay for it because somebody's got to pay for the 10 years of engineering that went in to figuring out how to build the car, right? And so uh, the, the price you sell a car has to pay back that amount of money. Mm. Uh, it's not profit, it's just, you know, mm. uh, paying back loans, <laughs> things that you use yeah. to develop the car. Uh, but another one is, uh, the, the cost of risk. There's a certain amount of risk to do something, right? And so if you tried to get that new tube built to go to a vacuum of a trillionth of an atmosphere, mm. it would have cost a lot. Right. A lot more than we paid, okay? Uh, but, uh, you know, in the end, what we figured out that we had to do to be able to afford it is find, we, is first of all determine what the vacuum specs would be and you know, now how do you achieve them? You don't go to the great vacuum companies that you know, would design a superb piece of vacuum equipment you know, that would take up a, a table in a laboratory uh, because you couldn't afford that. Mm. So what we had to do is devise ways, so this is part of the non-recurring engineering, we spent a few years trying to divide, devise ways that you could hire someone who knew how to build miles and miles of piping at the cheapest price possible, Right. okay, which winds up being people who build water lines or oil pipelines mm. and things like that, and then you would have to figure out what is it that the high premium vacuum companies know uh, and, and do that uh, these pipeline companies have to learn how to do. Okay, and uh, that's the non-recurring engineering part of it. But the other part is risk. There are just certain things that if you ask them to do it, uh, 
they don't know how to do it exactly. Well, you don't either. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it's just too hard for them to figure out how to do it. And so if they were to bid on a contract, they would bid at a very high price because they're worried about you know losing the company if they uh, if if risk goes against them. And so in the end, what you have to figure out is well, we'll take the risk. Mm-hmm. You build it, you do exactly this, you do it exactly this way, you prove to us that you did exactly this, and you did it exactly this way. And if it doesn't work out, we'll be very sad, but you'll get paid. Right, yeah, and so that company won't go out of business. And and then you can do it at a much lower price. They're not risking the company. And if it doesn't work, they're still in business. You can then still work with them and say, right, well, that didn't work. We didn't know it wouldn't work, but it didn't work. So now let's, we can now say, let's change our procedure. You know, can we, can you do it again, but in a slightly different way? And you've got a relationship, I guess, there in a business collaborative sense. Yeah. One of the things with big construction is you always have to try to ensure that your vendor, the, the contractor, is actually going to make money because if he can't make money and he starts to lose money, he might walk off the job or he might go yeah. out of business. And yeah. then you're, you know, you don't want your money back. You want your machine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, the machine definitely got built and it's tempting to say that the rest is history, except that history, of course, is constantly being written. You're listening to Pythagorean Astronomy from my gravitational wave field trip to LIGO Hanford. My trip there was at a time when the instrument wasn't in an observing mode. For the past couple of years, the LIGO detectors have been in the process of being upgraded to a new improved version, something called A-plus LIGO. I gave Mike Lantry the tough job of picking a couple of things that are going to change about the machine. So it's hard to pin down one, uh, so I'll only concentrate on one. But, you know, the the A-plus, we're in A-plus right now. So we're, the 04 run will be the first of two A-plus runs. We'll do some of the work, we're doing some of the work now, and we'll do some of the work for 05, the fifth observation run as well. And the key elements that are for this run are things like upgrading the laser to higher power, which has uh, you improving the noise at higher frequencies in particular. So that's an important thing, especially for, uh, you know, sources that have high frequency components like the merger of two neutron stars, which spins up to high frequencies in our band. Um, and so there's a laser, there's uh, optics work, and there's something called a squeezed light source and a filter cavity that's being added. So of all the host of work that's done in A+, those are three elements in A+. There's coatings, new coatings for optics in O5 and a larger beam splitter. Of all of them, if I was to distill down one, it's probably this filter cavity that makes frequency-dependent squeezing possible. So squeezed light is something uh, that you add to your working interferometer. It's a special quantum state of light that can have the effect of reducing the quantum noise uh, from the laser in the interferometer. And so noise for us is not just things like ground motion and acoustic noise and uh, control noises, but also quantum noise in the laser. And that's expressed at high frequencies as something called shot noise, which is a statistical process that leaves noise in your interferometer and dominates the, the noise budget at high frequencies. 
and then at low frequencies, it's uh, radiation pressure, literally photons pushing around your mirrors and making noise in the interferometer, true, true mm -hmm. displacement noise. And so the addition of this quantum state of light called squeeze light, which has been sent through a filter cavity, allows you to tailor how you do your squeezing, how the squeezing is expressed on uh, the interferometer. And it allows you to attack the shot noise at high frequencies and the amplitude noise at low frequencies. So that's really a, a, a crucial contribution to the A-plus design is this squeezed light source and the filter cavity. Now, squeeze light sounds pretty mind-boggling to me. It's certainly right up there in terms of cutting-edge technology. General relativity and gravitational waves are often used as the uh, a hallmark of the, the most topical cutting-edge scientific discoveries. But there's so much more to do in terms of the science and technology. It's tempting to think that everyone who works on something like LIGO is an expert in rel general relativity. But that's not the case. As someone else I ran into at LIGO in a slightly noisy control room, Dr Georgia Mansell, explains... And fair warning, this gets a little bit technical. Georgia, the, your, your commission is for LIGO. LIGO is a gravitational wave uh, observatory. I think one of the interesting things about these kind of things is that um, it, you're not an expert in general relativity, I'm assuming. Um, I, I, may, I may be misassuming. That may be an assumption on my part. But uh, I'm guessing that that's not one of the things that you, you specialise in. It takes, it takes all sorts to, uh, to do this. What's... What's your background in, in physics or astronomy and, and what brought you into, into commissioning an instrument like this? Yeah, you're exactly right. I am not an expert in general relativity and it's my ultimate shame that I never took it. <laughs> I never took general relativity. Um, so my background's more in optics. Um, and yeah, I started out working on like laser amplifiers and then um, that was in, in undergrad. And then uh, my supervisor was part of the LIGO collaboration and, and he suggested that I do a PhD at, at ANU on squeezing. Well, I, I picked the squeezing project. So there I moved to more like quantum optics um, type research uh, directed at gravitational detectors. So yeah, I'm definitely more of a hands-on uh, person. <laughs> uh, definitely not doing the GR. We use general relativity as a, you know, the idea of a, of a really complicated theory and so on. But you mentioned quantum optics there. Uh, this is this is a, a utilizing quantum mechanics to control what mirrors and lenses and all sorts of and lasers and, uh, and and stuff are doing. That that's pretty pretty complex stuff. I mean, the the stuff going on in LIGO. You mentioned squeezing, which is this weird thing. I'm, I'm not sure that on this podcast trying to define squeezing is a... I mean, you're welcome to have a go. <laughs> um, but it's... Uh, some of this stuff is is really groundbreaking. The stuff you're doing with the optics is right at the limit of what's possible, isn't it? Yeah, so squeezing is an interesting one. So it's... Um, I think gravitational waves is the, the most uh, practical application of it, um, but... People are also looking at squeezing for doing like quantum computing, quantum key distribution, uh, that kind of stuff. So that's where the, the quantum optics, uh, that's, that's where the other parts of it. But for, I could try to explain squeezing really quickly if, if that's okay. Go on, give, give it a shot. Tell us what is, I, I hear about it in, in my line of work, people talking about squeezing. So t tell me what squeezing <laughs> is and, and, and why it's useful. Yeah, so 
uh, photons have uncertainty in the phase and amplitude, much like a particle has uncertainty in the position and momentum. So it's a Heisenberg uncertainty principle, um, but for photons. And so squeezing is where we manipulate that uncertainty principle. We push the noise or the uncertainty from the thing that we care about into the thing we don't care about. So for LIGO, uh, for most of our detection range, we're trying to measure phase really precisely. So we want to do phase squeezing where we reduce the uncertainty in the phase for our, our photons and push it into the amplitude quadrature where we don't really care about it. So we're just taking an uncertainty ball and squishing it into an ellipse. Okay, and you do that with very complicated sets of lasers and, and mirrors and you yeah. know, smoke and mirrors. Um. <laughs> <laughs> it, we use nonlinear optics. So we take, um, we take a green laser and send it through a nonlinear crystal, um, which then does uh, the, the optical parametric oscillation. We take one green photon and it splits into two infrared photons. And how I like to think about it is those two infrared photons are generated in this one process, so they're correlated now. Mm -hmm. And that that kind of, uh, in a very hand-waving way, that gives you your phase squeezing. The phase of these two photons are, okay. are now correlated. And so if you, if you do something to one of the photons, you learn something about the other one. Yeah, they're entangled. Yeah. They are entangled, yeah. And people might have heard, if people have read popular science, books they might have heard of quantum entanglement as this really abstract thing which you say this is a real yeah, you know, a, application of it. We inject entangled photons into our detector and it makes it more sensitive so yeah it, it works it's pretty exciting. <laughs> well I did warn you that that would get technical. It's important to remember of course that LIGO Hanford is just one detector. It's got a twin LIGO Livingston in Louisiana which is as close to a twin as you can get with such large instruments separated by thousands of kilometres. There's also Virgo in Italy, Geo in Germany, and now Kagra in Japan, which are all slightly different instruments but work on the same principles. The plan now is to turn the twin LIGO detectors into a triplet, with a third detector in India. I asked Fred Raab just how identical that third triplet would be. The plan is that they will build it so that all three detectors will use similar equipment, same equipment basically, uh, so that uh, that minimizes engineering of upgrades. And uh, we do have, you know, some minor things uh, th that are reflective of either time or uh, the place, right? Uh, so. Uh, for instance, we do a lot of steel construction for our buildings. Uh, in India, they do reinforced concrete. Right. Okay. Uh, but the floor plans will be quite similar. In fact, uh, there's uh, are a little bit, allow a little more space. Uh, we had a constraint, for instance, recently we had to add another uh, vacuum tube and a... Uh, and some chambers and a, a new end station, small end station building uh, for uh, one of our upgrades. And we were, because we were already built uh, and there was a fire uh, road overpass 
across one arm and had to go on the other arm. Right. And and so there's a little bit of a dog leg in the uh, in the two U.S. LIGO facilities since they haven't built theirs yet. They didn't have to have that, and it's much simpler to go along the X arm, for instance, rather right. than the way it's along the Y arm for us. Has no consequence for the science. Uh, and uh, it just makes everything easier. Uh, we had uh, occasionally some troubles putting some of our, had to partially assemble some loads that went in big chambers uh, because of the tonnage limit on our crane. Mm. Uh, and it winds up that their cranes are rated metric tons instead of Imperial tons, and so right. <laughs> they have just enough capacity to not have to do some procedures we have to do, uh, and so little changes like that. Mm. But the but the in principle, will you know our mirrors should be interchangeable. Lasers uh, will operate the same when when we upgrade. We'll have one set of drawings. Uh, the, you know, except you know maybe one coupling because there's a corner we have to turn in the U.S in the vacuum right. system that they don't have to do, that okay. sort of thing. Very minor differences. And so now looking back to, uh, you know, young Fred Raab, so age, I don't know, seven, um, you know, young you, uh, I'm not sure what your, what your dreams and aspirations were at, 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 at school, but uh, in 2015, you were, you know, uh, leading bits of this collaboration that then made that first direct detection of, of gravitational waves. Um, do you think, I mean, seven-year-old you, I guess, couldn't, probably couldn't have imagined, what, what do you think seven-year-old you would have thought of what's, what's happened now? I'm not sure about seven-year-old me, uh, but by the time I was nine, I, I was very cognizant of the U.S. space program, and I was a big, big fan of you know all of these space launches and satellites and things like that and that that's one of the things that really hooked me on science uh sort of at an early stage uh and uh you know uh, i was hooked enough that i listened to kennedy's talk uh, <laughs> our president kennedy's uh announcement that we were going to go to the moon uh, mm. by the end of the 1960s. And uh, so I was well enough. Uh, so I, I was very enthusiastic about that. Uh, I know if I were uh, an aerospace engineer, I might have been scared like hell <laughs> after I heard that uh, announcement because I had no idea how to get to the moon as an engineer. <laughs> but... Uh, but evidently, I was going to have to figure it out. Uh, but I was very enthusiastic. I followed the space program left and right. And then another huge uh, thing was, that really cemented it was by the time I was 10 or 11, uh, my mom had taken me to the American Museum of Natural History. And, you know, then, there I, you know, you get to see giant assembled dinosaur bones mm. uh, that they had of a planetarium where they had a huge meteorite fragment. And, uh, you know, that, that made a physical uh, impression. 
that, you know, there were beyond my experience areas of time and space that were just, you know. Mind-blowing. Mind-blowing, yeah. yeah. And, and so I knew then that I needed to do something that was really sciencey, mm. whether it was engineering, uh, et cetera. You know, the, the guy who ran the, uh, the overall operations uh, at, at Houston was a guy named Chris Kraft, and I wanted his job. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the, the space grab... The space program, which was, of course, so huge for so many people back in the in the, the 60s and so on, um, it inspired you along with other things to do this. Um, do you think there's an important role for facilities and, and experiments like LIGO in doing that same thing, but for today's nine-year-olds, Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, I'm not alone. Uh, you know, this wonderful building we're in, uh, was paid for by the state of Washington here in the U.S. And uh, at the grand opening, you know, the governor said he hopes that this facility will uh, inspire, you know, young people who are in high school or not yet in high school uh, to realize that if you put your mind to it uh, and work hard, you can solve climate change. Yeah, so some of the next big challenges yeah. that, 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 that human race has to face. Another person I ran into at LIGO Hanford was senior operator Corey Gray. Corey is from a Native American background, as we'll hear shortly. But I started by asking him, as I did with Fred, what got him to where he is today and whether he thought as a kid that he'd be helping detect gravitational waves. I mean, I've always been interested in science, mainly because of my father, Tom Gray. Uh, He was an engineer, but uh, I think in high school, I'm dating myself, but there was a TV show called MacGyver, and that was someone, uh, kind of another role model that I had. And so that's when I kind of decided I wanted to get into physics. But as far as getting to LIGO, when I was an undergrad, I took an astronomy course, and there was only maybe a few paragraphs about gravitational waves. This is back in the 90s. Uh, but uh, yeah, after I graduated from undergrad in uh, the late 90s, I saw a job announcement for a job up here in Washington State. I was in California. And so I applied, and I thought I'd just be here a few years uh, learning about this new physics. But it's almost 25 years later, and uh, I still love it. I still love living up here. and. You can't complain being a part of a huge discovery mm. in the history of science and being connected to Albert Einstein, yeah. too. And, I mean, I don't know, can we talk a little bit about your heritage and your, your, your background? So we're sitting on a site here that, uh, in, for uh, eons gone by, for time immemorial, has been, you know, used, occupied, lived on by all sorts of Native American tribes, I think is the, yeah. the, the, the yeah. phrase that's used. And you're from uh, one of the tribes that's not from here, but from other parts of North America. Yes. Um, how important is that history to, to LIGO, to you, to, to those communities? Yeah, I mean, 
I, I need to do more homework to know about this area and the people who are here. One thing I would say is that there's probably a good chance that my tribe uh, had connections through here, mainly through trade, because a lot of the tribes would trade with each other. And so, uh, yeah, so let me back up. As far as my tribe, I'm a member of the Siksika Nation, which is part of the Blackfoot Confederacy. That's a Plains tribe. And our traditional lands is pretty much southern Alberta and northwest Montana, but we were also known as a warrior tribe, so we actually had a much lot larger traditional area. And so uh, that's my background. Uh, uh, and my background is something that I used, used to maybe not bring to the forefront of my work, because I didn't really know ways to connect it. But uh, over the years, working here, I've learned the importance of science communication and visibility and representation, especially for underrepresented groups. So when I was in undergrad, there was I didn't have any role models who were native that I could look up to. And so I think over the years, I've gotten over my shyness. I've gotten over uh, wanting to just do my work in the lab and kind of see the importance of uh, science communication. And so that's something that I've been doing in as many creative ways as I can, because I think it's so important to get uh, underrepresented groups into the sciences, especially for me for to, to get indigenous peoples into the sciences and especially uh, physics. And so examples of creative ways I've done that is uh, to actually recruit my mother to do work with LIGO. So she's a sort of a colleague uh, with, uh, with me here at LIGO. And one of the things that I kind of pounced on with our first detection of uh, gravitational waves that was were detected at the end of 2015 and announced in 2016 was that I recruited my mother to translate the press release into uh, Blackfoot. Uh, and I think that's a first. I think it's the first time that an indigenous language has been used to translate a, a scientific document. Uh, and so that's what I had my mom do. And, uh, and I mainly did it for a few reasons, just the whole exercise of it, mm -hmm. uh, to also have the opportunity to work with my mom, which is also a rare thing to Always do. Always nice, yeah. Yeah, it's a, that's another good thing. Uh, but, uh, but I guess it's just the, the whole idea of just thinking of ways to maybe get the interest out there, just thinking of different ways to do it. So that was an, a, a big thing that I did with my mom. And I, not much attention happened to it uh, when it happened. Uh, wait, I'm forgetting. I wanted to talk about uh, uh, why I did it. The other reason is because it was a historic scientific discovery. So I knew there would be a lot of attention mm -hmm. to, uh, well, of course, our discovery, but also to this translation, the translation work that my mom did. So that was the other reason why I pounced on that opportunity. Mm -hmm. And my mom's been uh, doing continuous work for us. So she's translated about uh, three press releases and maybe four science summaries. And uh, just this week, uh, she finished completing a translation of a uh, uh, LIGO, LIGO comic that's called Spectra. And so that's going to be translated into Blackfoot as well. And so, yeah, so that's one thing that I do. But there's other things that I do with outreach as far as just uh, hopefully, you know, inspire that next generation of scientists too. Particularly for those people who don't see themselves necessarily represented in yeah. the scientific community. And, and that's, that's Definitely. a really important thing to be able to do. Yeah, I mean, I, I give talks all the time. I mean, that's another stressful thing with my calendar, trying to make time to, uh, to do that kind of outreach work. Uh, because I have work here that I also have to worry about, so it's, it can be a little uh, overwhelming at times, but it's kind of a responsibility that I think a lot of us who are Native and in physics, that uh, it's, a, it's a responsibility we kind of have to do. I mean, for me, I was a reluctant science communicator. 
I was super shy. I didn't like giving public talks, but over the years, I've managed to somehow get better at it and learn to love it. And so that's something that I like to do. And then, yeah, just with a lot of my talks, I also try to always think of my audience, especially if they're indigenous kiddos, like if there's ways that I can make it fun and really cool, those are things that I do. Uh, for my, another example is that with my tribe, we have a pow every year. And for our pow in 2017, I held an event there. My, me and my cousin had this idea for doing this where we had a dance contest, a gravitational wave grass dance contest. And it's kind of a standard thing with powwows, but uh, it gave me the opportunity to have about 20, 15, 20 minutes to talk to the audience and tell everybody at this event that, uh, uh, there's a connection between Blackfoot or indigenous people to Einstein, a connection between indigenous people and astrophysics. And a lot of people had no idea of this type of work and this type of science. And so those are the things that keep me up at night, just trying to think of ways to get this kind of uh, story out there to uh, just to everybody, but especially indigenous people for me. Well, I hope we've done our small bit to get the story out there. It's been fascinating to hear from the people right at the forefront operating these detectors, how they got here, and where we might be going in the future. A huge thanks to Mike Landry, Fred Raab, Georgia Mansell and Corey Gray. That's it for this month. Don't forget you can find past episodes, including part one of this gravitational field trip, at pythagastro.uk, or you can find us on Spotify. Just search for Pythagorean Astronomy. Until next month, when I'll be back in Cardiff, goodbye. <laughs> You've been listening to Pythagorean Astronomy, an extended version of this month's Astronomy Roundup from Pythagoras' Trousers, a weekly science and technology radio show presented by me, Rhys Phillips. You can catch up on full episodes of Pythagoras' Trousers, subscribe to our podcast and get in touch by going to www.pythagoras-trousers.radio.fm.